Good morning, Grace Chapel. All right. The wall coming down is kind of perfect. I feel like every time I talk, walls come up. So it's fine. I've been to counseling before. Um, it's good to be with you. My name is Thomas. Uh, like Victor said, I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Nebraska. Uh, and we partner with Grace Chapel. A great number of our students go here. I see some of them back there. So it's good to be with you this morning. And as Victor said, we're going to be in the book of Acts. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Acts 11, 19 through 30, and 13, 1 through 3. Um, so that's right after the Gospels, if you're flipping there. I think it'll be up on the screen. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, and we can pray and then get started. So Acts 11, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians." Now in, those day, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is your word, and we pray that you would teach us. Lord, will you open our eyes, uh, help us to see who you are, help us to see what you have for us today. Um, All of these things I ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've been uh, around Grace Chapel for a little bit, you've been around this spring, um, you'll know we're kind of coming off a time where we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We've just been through Lent. Uh, We've done Holy Week, which has, you know, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, all leading up to Easter Sunday. Then we celebrated Eastertide, this big party after Easter. Uh, Then we have uh, the Ascension. Ten days later, we have Pentecost, which was last Sunday, which celebrates the Spirit coming. And then today, we enter into this time called Ordinary Time. 
ordinary time. And if you're anything like me, you hear ordinary time, you're just like, wah, wah. It's like, that's a bummer. We just came off of all of this amazing stuff, and then all of a sudden we're in ordinary time. Why is that? I think it's because we're celebrating a lot. We've just celebrated the, the central thing in human history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, think about it this way. So I am attempting to get back into running now. Uh, I don't know if any of you stopped exercising during COVID. Uh, I did. Um, and, you know, it's because where I was, you know, it was really intense. You couldn't exercise outside. And that's actually not true. I was in Lincoln. You could exercise outside. I just didn't do it. Um, but I'm, so I'm trying to get back into running. And recently I tried uh, to run about 30 minutes after eating lunch. Um, I believe I ate chili. Um, and uh, it was terrible. It didn't go too well. Um, and if you've done running before, you know, uh, you probably know why, right? You need time to process. Uh, I looked it up and it says you're supposed to wait about two hours after you eat a big meal. So from then on, I've been waiting about two hours and not eating chili for lunch. Uh, but see, when you eat a meal and you're about to run, your body needs time to process that food and turn it into energy. Friends, that's what this season that we're entering into is. That's what ordinary time is. It's time for us to process the story of Jesus that we've just told and to turn it into energy. And through this summer uh, at Grace Chapel, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts and specifically Paul's missionary journeys. And we're going to be asking this question, how does the story of Jesus apply to our lives? How does the story of Jesus apply to our lives? We'll see in the book of Acts that God, who is actually the main character, uh, is growing his church and building his kingdom across cultural barriers and in societies that are not very different from our own. And today, as I read earlier, we're going to be looking at Acts eleven nineteen through 30 and a little bit of chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the church in Antioch. And just to kind of orient you within the book of Acts, Acts is the story of God's work in growing his church. So in Acts 1, uh, Jesus, right before he ascends, says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is that happening. The first part of the book is, is them being his witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the second part of the book is to the ends of the earth. And where we're at in the story right now is kind of the hinge point between those two things. At this point in the book of Acts, really the only people who have become believers in Jesus were Jewish people. So the gospel has gone to Jewish people. And then in our passage, we see Antioch, which is a, a Gentile, predominantly Gentile city. And we see here the first Gentile church. So as we look at this first Gentile church today, we're going to be asking this question. What happens when the story of Jesus sinks in? What happens when the story of Jesus sinks in? And as we look, we're going to see three things. Uh, first, we see that we live transformed lives. Second, we bear one another's burdens. And third, we participate in God's mission. So when the story of Jesus sinks in, we live transformed lives, we bear one another's burdens, and we participate in God's mission. 
So first off, when the story of Jesus sinks in, we live transformed lives. If you would look with me to verse 19 there at the beginning, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So to kind of set the stage for this passage, what's going on here is there is a persecution uh, based around this guy named Stephen who was one of the first deacons in the church. And and Acts tells us that Stephen was a, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Stephen had kind of gotten into a confrontation uh, with the uh, Jewish religious authorities of the day. And uh, Stephen had given this long, masterful speech where essentially he told uh, the high priest and the Jewish council that they don't know God. You don't say that. It did not go over well. He was stoned by the council. He was put to death. And what we see happened after that was there was this great persecution that arose against the church in Jerusalem because the church was associated with Stephen. They didn't like him. And the person overseeing this was a man named Saul. Saul was a Jewish man who would later become Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. This is an intense and deadly persecution, and it led to people running from their homeland and moving north, and moving north. And it says that some of these people began speaking to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. It says men of Cyprus and Cyrene. We see that in verse 20. And what that, that means here, uh, when we see the word Hellenist, if you've read the book of Acts, uh, sometimes that's used to refer to uh, Greek-speaking Jewish people. But in this context, it's pretty clear this is actually just referring to Greek-speaking people, predominantly Gentiles. So they start coming into this city of Antioch, which is about the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So kind of like their Chicago, if you will. It was a a big city. And these men of Cyprus and Cyrene who are running this, this persecution that has happened start speaking about Jesus to these Greek-speaking Gentiles. And what was the result? We see in verse 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So out of this great persecution and suffering, we see some sort of transformation happening here. We see something that must have felt like death for these early believers being ripped from their homelands. We see this being turned into life. Does that sound familiar? See, the story of Jesus had so shaped the hearts and minds of these people that they began to look for ways that this very real experience of persecution and death that they were experiencing could be turned to resurrection life. See, they had taken in the story of Jesus, and they began to look for ways that Jesus was going to bring about resurrection here. So we see a transformed suffering here. But not only do we see that, we see a transformed identity at a couple places here. Uh, If you would look with me to verse 23. So the the Jerusalem church, uh, those that are left of them at least, they start to hear about this mass conversion of Gentiles. And so they send Barnabas to kind of check the situation out. And when Barnabas shows up, it says that he was glad when he saw the grace of God poured out on these people. He was glad. And then he goes and he gets Saul. Saul, the one who is the whole reason for this persecution. 
But Saul, in between that time, has actually met Jesus. He's met Jesus and been transformed. And Barnabas goes and gets Saul, and he brings the very one who was the primary enemy of the church to be a servant of the church. We see in verse 26, it says, For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great many people. So the very one who caused this persecution, who caused this suffering, is is laboring to teach them, to show them more about who Jesus is. And then we see the result of this. We see that a group of of Hellenistic people, a group of just Greek-speaking people, that was the only commonality they had, are turned into, at the end of verse 26, it says, the disciples were first called Christians. They become known as Christians. And this might be surprising, but the word Christian is actually not used in the Bible very often. I believe it's only used three times. Uh, the early Christians actually referred to themselves as disciples or, or brothers and sisters or something like that more often than not. Uh, and Christians was more, than, more likely than not kind of a derogatory term. Uh, it means something like Christ people or maybe little Christs. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever been in middle school or not, but uh, the way that nicknames work or derogatory nicknames work It usually comes from something that is like painfully obvious about you, and you're assigned a nickname there. Uh, For instance, uh, when I would go on road trips as a kid, I have two older brothers, uh, we would constantly have to stop for a pit stop because I was a little 10-year-old who couldn't hold his Mountain Dew. And my brothers decided to start calling me Teaspoon teaspoon because I, because we had to stop to use the bathroom all the time. It was painfully obvious about me. I've actually heard that Victor has a similar nickname around the church. Uh, That one's for free. But see, what does it tell you that the thing that was painfully obvious about these people was that they were little Christs, that they were Christ people, the world surrounding them, that they were looking for some sort of commonality, some sort of common identity in this group of people, and the only thing they could come up with was Jesus. See, this church went from being identical with their surroundings to being something else entirely. They received a new identity as Christians. And this sort of transformation, I think it's appealing Like, we want to see our suffering transformed. We want to see people receiving new identity. We want to see people coming to know Jesus. But I think when we look at the church often, we don't see much transformation. We see the same things happening in culture happening inside the church. We see abuse. We see misuse of power. We see all sorts of problems. Why is it that we don't see more transformation like this? And I think it's because on a fundamental level, we miss the point of the story of Jesus. And I think we miss it in in two important ways, two related ways. Uh, First, we minimize how bad we are. And second, we miss out on how loved we are. We minimize how bad we are, and we miss out on how loved we are. What do I mean by this? Uh, We minimize how bad we are. If you think through the story of Jesus that we've just told in this season, okay, The story of Jesus tells us that our problem was so dire, so bad, that the only way that it could be fixed was God himself becoming man. 
living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death, being raised from the dead, and somehow mysteriously by his spirit uniting us to himself. That's what it took for our problem to be dealt with. See, we didn't need just encouragement or correction or some sort of minor, minor like moral reformation. No, we were dead people who needed to be brought to life. You see, the language that the Bible uses for our natural state is things like children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, that's how bad the problem is. And we miss out on that, but we also miss out on how loved we are. The story of Jesus not only tells us how bad the problem is, it tells us how loved we are. We were so loved that Jesus was willing to die for us. Jesus would move heaven and earth to have us. That's what we rehearse every every year when we tell the story of Jesus. See, just as we were dead in our sin, the work of Christ has made us alive. It's made us alive. When we live transformed lives, what we're doing is we're being who we are. We're being who we are, who Christ has made us. We are proclaiming that the story of Jesus is our own. So when the story of Jesus sinks in, we live transformed lives. We live transformed lives. But second, it says that here that we bear one another's burdens. Uh, if you would, look with me to verse 27. So it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, and when you hear the word prophet, I wonder what comes to mind for you. Uh, if you're anything like me, uh, prophet kind of, it's like some mystical person, right, who just has a sense about how things are going to turn out. Or maybe you're imagining like a crystal ball or anything like that. I don't really have time to go into like the depths of what a prophet is, but I'll just give you a quick definition here. A prophet in the Bible was a spokesperson for God. It wasn't a person who just had a sense about these things. It wasn't like your your aunt who claims to be clairvoyant. Like a prophet was someone who was a spokesperson for God. And this spokesperson for God named Agabus comes and it says he foretells by the Spirit a great famine over all the world. And the world at that time would have meant the Roman Empire. So he's talking about a famine that's going to happen. And at a time like this where you're very dependent upon the land, a famine would have been disastrous. It would have been disastrous. And so what does this new church do? How do they respond to this news of a famine? says in verse 29 that they determined to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They recognize that it is their calling to bear the burdens of the church in Judea and the church in Jerusalem, a church full of Jewish people. And this is, uh, I think this is, this is admirable, right, to do this sort of thing. This is sacrificial in a sense. But I think understanding a little bit of the context can help us maybe bring into clearer focus just how sacrificial this would have been. Um, So the Jew and Gentile relationship at this time, so Gentile just meaning non-Jewish person, was not particularly great. Uh, There was a lot of tension. Uh, Jewish people would refer to Gentiles as dogs. Uh, They would have seen the Gentiles as oppressors the Roman Empire, coming in and taking everything over. When they heard Gentile, they thought bad guy. 
They thought a person who is an idolater, a pagan, someone who we don't like. And in fact, much of the New Testament deals with Jewish believers trying to force their Gentile counterparts, ones who have come to faith in Jesus, to adopt parts of their culture, to adopt their ritual laws in order to be Christians. In fact, we see in just a couple chapters that there is a group from the church in Jerusalem, the very one that they have just sent this relief to, who was particularly zealous to, to point out that Gentiles needed to adopt Jewish law in order to be true Christians. This church in Jerusalem is saying, like, you need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, which is a really tough thing to hear if you're a Gentile. You see, it would have been very easy for the church at Antioch to be cynical about their relationship to this church in Judea. This church would have had people who were very supportive of Gentiles being believers, but it also would have had people who were very, very suspicious about what was going on in Antioch. This church in Antioch is kind of the the cool, young, hip church, and then the church in Jerusalem is kind of like the old school church, and you can imagine how there's some sort of suspicion that might develop there. You know, it would have been easy for, for the church at Antioch to say things like, you know, it serves them right. That's what they get for being fundamentalist jerks. That's what they get. And yet that's not what we see. What we see here is this Gentile church bearing the burdens of this Jewish church. How does that happen? How does that happen? I think it's because these early Christians understood that there was some sort of unbreakable bond that the story brought, the story of Jesus brought them with other people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a German theologian from the 20th century, sums it up like this. Uh, he was asked, how do you determine who your brother is or who, who is a Christian? And he says this, my brother is anyone who has been redeemed by Christ. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. See, these early Christians, they knew that the story of Jesus united them across cultural lines, across suspicion. They were able to love people that might not have been easy to love. So what does this mean for us? Think about it this way. What, what do we think determines our commonality with other believers? Whether it's a, a different denomination or maybe even people within the church. Uh, if you're anything like me, there's probably some second-order questions that you might need to answer before you would want to get too involved with other Christians. Uh, here's some that I thought of. Uh, for some people, it's like, uh, do they drink? Are you one of those Christians who drinks or are you a teetotaler? Uh, Do you agree with me politically? Like, do you get it? Does this person get it? Uh, Do they homeschool their kids? Do they send their kids to Christian school? Do they send their kids to, gasp, public school? Do they like modern worship? Do they like hymns? Do they like psalms? Do they like something else? You see, these are all fine things to have preferences on. But there's something in us that in order for us to feel like we have some sort of commonality with people, we feel like we have to agree on these things. And what the story of Jesus tells us is that those things are all downstream of what matters. 
You see, our commonality is determined by what Christ has done to us. Our commonality with other believers, it comes from the outside and it's placed on us. It's not something that arises from within us. You see, Christ has died for us. Christ has risen for us. Christ will come again to make all things new. And by participating in that story, we are a part of this new humanity that God is making. You see, being a part of this story, it, it, it relativizes all of our very real differences. They're still there, and that's okay. But it gives us a greater commonality. So when the story of Jesus sinks in, we bear one another's burdens. But then third and finally, uh, and quickly, uh, when the story of Jesus sinks in, we participate in God's mission. God's mission. Uh, what do you think about when you hear the word mission? If you're anything like me, uh, you think about missionaries. Uh, I grew up in the church, and we would have missions conferences, it seems like four times a year. I don't know. Might have been more. Um, but what would happen in that is that there would be these people who I viewed as just like super Christians who would take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and bring it to another culture. That was the thing, and we would celebrate that again and again. So we have this idea of mission being something that Christian people are supposed to do. Uh, But what I'm talking about here is God's mission. We don't often hear those words combined, God and mission. What I mean by that is this. Throughout the scripture, God is about one thing. One thing again and again, and that one thing is making himself known. God is about making himself known. And he is also in the business of inviting people into that mission. We see this throughout scripture. In the garden, he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, exercise dominion, aka make me known. And then even after the fall, he says the same thing to Noah. He says, make me known. And then to Abraham and his family, make me known. And then to Israel, make me known. And then Jesus, to the church, he says, you will be my witnesses. What does that mean? Make me known. So how do we participate in this mission of making God known? What does it look like to make God known? I think we see in uh, 13.2 here, says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Uh, Two things first here. Uh, What is this early church doing? What are they doing? It says that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. They were a community that was obsessed with knowing God. In order to make God known, we have to know him. And how do we do that? In worship. See, what does this community spend their time doing? Worshiping and fasting. They spend their time attending to what theologians would later call the the ordinary means of grace. And that's kind of a fancy way of the things that sustain relationship with God. The things that sustain relationship with God, which is the scriptures, hearing the word preached, reading the scriptures, singing the scriptures, praying the scriptures, The sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. 
See, this is a community that was dedicated to worshiping together, a community that was dedicated to knowing God. And what did they do out of this knowledge that they had of God? We see this in the second part of verse 2. It says, As they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then in verse 3 it says, And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So out of their knowledge of God, this church responds by making him known by participating in this mission of God, of of spreading worship of him across the globe, this new church becomes a launching pad for all of Paul's mission. They laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas, which would have been an act of blessing, and then they sent them off. So how can we participate in God's mission? What, What does it look like for us? What does it look like for us to know God and to make him known? I think the same thing it meant for these early believers. We need to commit to the church. We need to be known. We need to love the church. We need to serve the church. See, the church is the community that is entrusted with the mission of God. The church is the community entrusted with the word of God. It's the community entrusted with the sacraments. It's the community where we pray together. An early church father named Cyprian said, A man cannot know God as father without knowing the church as mother. It's another way of saying that you can't be a Christian without the church. And if you want to live on mission, if you want to embrace God's mission, you need the community that is called to be a part of it, and that is the church. The church is where God can be known. Uh, I believe there's a quote on your bulletin that I sent in. Uh, It's by a guy named Leslie Newbigin. I'll just give you kind of the shortened, shortened version of it. He says this. He says, The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Hermeneutic is just a fancy way of saying way of understanding. So the only way that the gospel, gospel can be intelligible The only way that when we were living together in Lincoln and there's all these people who don't know Jesus and we're racking our brains on how are they going to know Jesus, the way they're going to know Jesus is through you. Living life together. The only way to understand the gospel is a congregation of men and women who live it out together. So as the story of Jesus sinks in, we become a part of God's mission. So let's put all this together here. So we've looked at this passage, and we've seen these three things that happen when the story of Jesus sinks in. And I wonder, uh, where are you at hearing all three of these things? Uh, I imagine that there are some of us who, when we hear this, uh, we are ready to get to work. Some of us, when we hear this, we're excited. Uh, We we start thinking, you know, I'm going to start doing just like two-hour-long quiet times, like, I'm going to do spiritual CrossFit. I am going to bear so many burdens. I am going to be so missional, it's going to hurt, right? Some of us get excited about this sort of thing when we hear these things like, oh, what can I do to be a part of this? But then maybe others of us, when we hear these sorts of things, we start to feel overwhelmed, When we hear that the story of Jesus produces transformation, we'll ask the question, am I really transformed? Why don't I love 
other Christians? Why don't I get excited about bearing burdens? Why isn't my life more about making God known? And some of us maybe even be cynical that this sort of change could even happen. If that's you, I just want to look back through this passage with you. You don't need to look. I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a survey here. So all of the things that are happening in this passage, uh, they happen because of the Holy Spirit. We see here that lives are transformed because of the work of the Spirit. Barnabas, who is described as full of the Holy Spirit and faith, gets Paul and teaches the church for a year. The church at Antioch responds to the church in Judea because of a prophecy who is sent by, you guessed it, the Holy Spirit. The church at Antioch participates in the mission of God, how? At the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you are today, I, I just want to close here with some good news for you, okay? You don't bear the weight of transforming yourself alone. You don't bear the weight of sacrificially loving those who are suspicious of you alone. You don't bear the weight of accomplishing God's mission. You do not bear the weight of making the story of Jesus sink in, in your own heart. Dane Orland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. He says, The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus and moves it from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. Friends, the good news here is that it is the Spirit's job. It is the Spirit's chief joy to make the story of Jesus sink in. The Spirit is constantly about the business of applying the work of Jesus to you. Our calling is simply to get on board with what he's doing. And we do that with the strength that he supplies. The very spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells within us and brings about resurrection in our lives. We will be transformed as we are in step with the Spirit. We will bear one another's burdens as we are in step with the Spirit. We will be on mission as we are in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this great story that you have given um, to your church. Lord, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Lord, I do pray that more and more um, you would confirm this story to us by your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, tear down any things that get in the way, whether that be uh, competing stories that we tell ourselves. Whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that you would just impress upon us the ultimate seriousness and truth of the story of Jesus. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.